Hi everybody, JP here. Just wanted to tell everybody how excited I am that the AANS has relocated this year's meeting to my beloved home state of Florida in sunny Orlando. It'll take place August 21st to 25th. Be on the lookout as housing opens next month in March and registration will open in May. Once again, we hope to see everybody at the AANS meeting this year, August 21st to 25th in Orlando, Florida. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome again to the Neurosurgery Podcast. We're continuing our discussions about cognition, and uh, JP and I were thinking that, you know, neurosurgeons know something about cognition, but it might be a good idea to bring on some other experts. So tonight, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by David Lowenstein. David Lowenstein is a clinical psychologist and a researcher here at the University of Miami, and he is an expert in uh, many matters of measurement and intervention in, in uh, alterations in cognition. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you know that JP and I are both neurosurgeons, and most of our audience are neurosurgeons, so, so we're not as bright as you, so forgive us. But why don't you introduce yourself, a little bit about your background, how you got into this area of research, and, and maybe where you trained? Absolutely. So I'm a um, professor of, of psychiatry and neurology at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. I'm also um, the director of um, the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience and Aging at the University of Miami. And I am a board-certified um, neuropsychologist, and um, I'm delighted to, to speak with you today. Great, great. So today, let's focus, you know, our 20 or 30 minutes talking about cognitive decline, you know, so there's a lot of aspects of cognition, but, but I know that your expertise in research, at least, is in that arena. So, you know, there are a lot of ways people can have cognitive decline, but why don't you tell us a little about your experience in treating these patients and what it's like when people are, are literally losing their minds, right? A very good question. Well, first of all, um, as people get older, certain um, cognitive processes um, change as a function of normal aging. Our job as neuropsychologists is to um, determine through the use of normative data and innovative um, tests what cognitive decline is normal um, and what decline represents incipient conditions such as um, um, Alzheimer's disease in the earliest stages, um, a vascular problem, a neoplasm. Um, so what we really do is we look at cognition and we are able to assure older adults that their cognitive, their memory, their language, their visual spatial function, 
their attention, their executive function is within normal limits given their age, education, and cultural background um, and, their gen- and their sex. Um, and we, ca- we can use these sensitive instruments th- to find out when the brain is not working as it should, and that is really um, the focus of our Alzheimer's Disease Research Center here at the University of Miami, as well as a lot of the work we do with, with um, amyloid and tau imaging and novel cognitive tests at the university. Now, Dr. Lowenstein, I find it very interesting that you laid out those specific components of cognition that are assessed with the tests and instruments that you use, executive function, language, visual processing, and the rest that you listed. Uh, And it's perfect that you brought those up because what I wanted to ask you at the onset of this conversation was to help us understand the terms and the constructs by which you approach the concept of human cognition and its treatment or its evaluation and function. Um, Maybe you could briefly break down some of these uh, subsets of cognition and help us understand the ways that you define normal as we begin to explore the abnormal. Okay. Well, you've asked two very interesting questions. First is to delineate um, these subtypes of, for example, memory domains, and then to differentiate normal from abnormal. So let's take memory, for example. There are many types of memory. There is um, verbal memory, um, memory for verbal discourse material, very much like somebody um, may try to remember this podcast. Um, That would be verbal memory. There is uh, visual memory, the memory for visual things. Um, There is immediate memory. There is short-term memory, and there are delayed memories. So, for example, in the, in the case of Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's disease is characterized by a deficit, an initial deficit, in short-term memory because of problems with storage and consolidation related to impairment in the circuits involving the hippocampus Enorhinal cortex, parorhinal cortex, and other structures in the medial temporal lobes. So, David, that's that's a, that's a nice summary of, of how you see these disease processes and how they might affect patients. Can you can you go through briefly the kind of diseases that you see most commonly? You mentioned some of them, right? Can you talk a little bit about the types of diseases that that are presenting to you and their impact on your patients? Absolutely. So. Um, We see um, primarily people who present to specialty memory disorders clinics. So the majority of people we have are either uh, people who have underlying Alzheimer's disease. There there are conditions such as frontal uh, temporal lobar dementias, which are called FTDs, which um, involve more frontal and temporal Um, involvement. Um, There are things like primary progressive um, aphasia. There is Parkinson's dementia and its related cousin, um, diffuse Lewy body disease, 
We see people with vascular disease. We see people with different types of neoplasms. We see people um, status post um, head injury. Our group um, is particularly interested in where normal aging ends in, in the older adult and where neurodegenerative changes in the brain start to occur. So most of our focus is on Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative disorders, but that's just a few of the many different conditions um, that we evaluate um, when people send us patients for referral. Now, I imagine that as these are disorders of cognition, disorders of mental function, that in many cases, certainly as the disease progresses, you wind up talking to the family, the loved ones, the friends and caretakers of these patients as much as you interact with the patient themselves, much like dealing with the parents of a pediatric patient. So in, in cases like these, what's it like treating the patient by proxy or, or I suppose empathizing with the patient by proxy where the instructions you give, the advice you give, the recommendations and any interventions are carried out secondhand by uh, these people surrounding and taking care of the patient rather than the person themselves suffering this disease? That is a terrific question. Um, usually when an older adult, for example, presents with a condition um, such as Alzheimer's disease, and of course we don't only use neuropsychological testing, we um, do extensive neuroimaging, which often includes... Um, it definitely includes MRI, often includes um, amyloid imaging. We have a very, very thorough um, neurological and psychiatric evaluation. But at the end of the day, we want to see how different scores diverge um, from what is normal. And neuropsychologists have large normative databases, so they know what scores are normal and abnormal, and they can actually put a percentile to it. So when you work with the person and their family members, it's very important, um, you know, to, to understand first the dynamic. Sometimes a spouse will bring in a patient who has Alzheimer's disease who has agnosia. They don't know that they don't know. So the person will be in complete denial about the disease. So the way you present feedback has to be tailored, right, to that situation. Um, and um, the, the person taking care of the patient or who is a spouse or a friend or a relative of the patient um, needs to, you know, both, both the patient and the person, the loved one, um, needs to be given the results in layman's terms, number one. Number two, they need to be dealt with with a lot of empathy. And the third thing that I try to do is I actually try to bring patients and their family members back because a lot of times after hearing the shock of a certain kind of cognitive diagnosis, um, they may want time to to, to reprocess it. They don't always hear it correctly the first time around. Well, that's actually a, a perfect uh, segue to maybe the most burning question I have for you tonight, 
because this is something I often wonder about, but in my own field of medicine, I, I so rarely interact with these patients and certainly not in the same kind of clinical setting as you do in your practice. So having, having talked about you know, addressing this disease and its progression with the family, with the caretakers, when you see a patient in an early stage of this, um, of any of these degenerative cognitive disorders, is there a period where they still have insight into not just what you tell them will happen, but into what is currently happening to them? And if so, maybe you could just talk about what it's like interacting with people, going through that process, what kinds of things they tell you um, about experiencing that subjectively, and maybe any lessons about how we could interact with people going through that. Well, that, that's a very important point. Um, I think um, some people who are evaluated are taken in by their family members. And again, they deny the symptoms. Right. So you have to be very gentle in terms of how you present feedback. And when you present feedback, you say you, you present that their memory is be, uh, below expected levels and uh, you have some concerns, but you're very willing to um, reevaluate them in nine to 12 months to see how they're doing. And, and th that helps many people process that because I said, okay, well, I had a bad day, but I'll be glad to come back nine to 12 months later. And, uh, you know, usually it's worse by that time, but it gives them a chance to kind of process. And uh, with other people, they're acutely aware of deficits very early on, right? They know something's wrong. And in that case, I've been amazed at how many people actually um, feel validated because for a long time, their family members have told them there's nothing wrong. This is just normal aging. There is no cognitive problems. And they actually have not felt heard. So in some cases, they actually feel heard that the objective testing kind of validates what they've been telling people around them, who people around them do, do not want to see. A third group of people obviously um, get very, very upset about knowing that their, their, their cognitive function is below normal. And particularly if we, um, you know, usually I work with a geriatric psychiatrist and a neurologist. So I will give the cognitive diagnosis and the neurologist or the geriatric psychiatrist will give the etiological diagnosis. Generally, that's mm -hmm. how we do it as a team. We have a very, uh, you know, big team approach. And the third case, you know, you just have to be very sensitive to the fact that um, Alzheimer's disease is probably one of the greatest fears of an older person. And there's many people who have very mild Alzheimer's disease that can go many, 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 many years without uh, losing autonomy, and they can still live, you know, um, there is something called MCI, mild cognitive impairment, in which you can have amyloid load on um, MRI, you can, you, you can um, have all the biological signs, uh, amyloid load on PET, 
uh, atrophy on MRI in all of the right places. And yet some of these people with mild cognitive impairment, eight or nine years later, are still living independently. So, so there's tremendous variability and you want to allow people to understand that just because you have cognitive impairment or even early Alzheimer's disease doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a rapid decline. Yeah, David, I really like that you bring up these super important topics because it is scary. And I like that, that we we could spend all day talking about this issue of awareness, right, or, or insight, because yeah. that is that is an important part of cognition, right? So are having insight or not, or having awareness or not, and then the emotive aspects, right? Those are really, really critical. But we are talking about a major public health problem. And, and I want to I want to remind our listeners that in countries like Japan, um, Alzheimer's or dementia, if you will, is one of their biggest problems coming up, right? In terms of the, the aging of their population. And as you've indicated, these folks can live a very long time with their disease process. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit. And, you know, you're in, your, your specialty is really in the science of measurement, right? And of course, yeah. my assumption will be that you're trying to measure the effect of intervention beyond just modeling the natural history, right? So can you can you tell us a little bit about the types of treatments you're seeing, whether they be generalized for dementia, uh, like psychological techniques, or even specific like medical therapies? Well, unfortunately, um, um, Alzheimer's disease has been a very, very difficult disease to um, treat. Um, there, there was a tremendous emphasis on um, um, stopping the Alzheimer's cascade or using anti-amyloid agents because amyloid um, deposition, A-beta has, has been, um, you know, the, the precursor or the earliest biological sign that have shown up, for example, on PET scans or in CSF 20 years or more before signs and symptoms are even shown clinically, right? So what that means is that uh, this disease begins very, very early and, um, and, and basically um, our attempts to try to target amyloid, the first thing that happens, the amyloid cascade, has been very unsuccessful in numerous trials. Um, there are symptomatic treatments like denepazil, like um, rivastigmine, like galantamine, but all of these things do is um, they're cholinesterase inhibitors. And basically what they do is they keep the available acetylcholine in the synapse longer, but they are not disease modifying. So right now, um, the newer treatments are focusing on treating both amyloid and tau. There, there are more treatments looking at oxidative stress. And my guess is in the next five or 10 years, uh, there, is no, there is no curative treatment for Alzheimer's disease, but we are going to start to develop cocktails, very much like in HIV that target multi-system degeneration because Alzheimer's disease involves multiple processes, 
and including um, amyloid, tau proteins, oxidative stress, microglial activation. It's a whole cascade of things that happen to an individual. So I wish we, we could say that we were are further. The value of our assessment is because the assessments that we use at U of M and places that specialize on early detection, um, we can actually correlate those with different biological markers, new markers that we see that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. Plus, when emerging treatments do come, we will be able to measure very precisely um, the earliest, earliest changes as it relates to people's everyday lives. Well, as we discuss these potential treatment modalities or treatment philosophies in the future with the multi-systems approach, kind of as you alluded to there at the end, Dr. Lowenstein, the ability to accurately measure disease and response to potential treatment is just as important as those treatments to develop effective therapies. So as you look forward to these multi-drug cocktails and these new approaches to degenerative cognitive disorders in the future, what else is on the horizon in terms of the measurement instruments? And how can we continue to improve our assessment of these sometimes ineffable cognitive functions? Well, that is actually the focus of the CNSA, the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience and Aging. And um, what we have done is we believe that many of the existing cognitive measures measure things um, at a much later stage of disease, whether it be Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease or diffuse Lewy body disease um, or frontal temporal dementia. Um, so we've developed what are called cognitive stress tests. And imagine as, um, um, Robert Bruce at the University of Washington had a wonderful idea this, this probably dates me that I'm even mentioning his name. I did my internship there. Bruce actually did the Bruce Protocol, which was the first exercise EKG. And mm -hmm. as, as you know, as neurosurgeons, that if you give somebody an exercise stress test and give them some thallium or another similar agent, you, you, can, you can much more readily detect... Um, problems with the cardiac system, and they're much more effective than a regular EEG done in a internist office, for example, or a cardiologist's office. So what we've developed are those equivalents. We stress the cognitive system. We develop tests that basically um, we're, we're uh, focused on a concept called proactive interference and recovery from proactive interference, which, which we administered using very sophisticated computerized tests that actually challenge the cognitive system and pushes it so that the cognitive system cannot compensate. You know, the brain is very good at compensating for deficits, right? It's a very, very complex organ. You guys do your work on the most complex organ in the human body by far. So it's complex. And on most standard cognitive and neuropsychological tests, um, 
many people um, who have high occupational attainment, who are good test takers, who develop strategies, can outsmart the tests. So part of our job is to develop cognitive stress tests that are so sensitive, they're, they're analogous to an exercise EKG, where we can bring out deficits in the brain long before traditional tests that are given in most private practices or other universities. So, so Dr. Lowenstein, I turned 50 next week, so what you're saying is so is going to be so relevant if I live long enough, I guess, to develop these problems. <laughs> and neurosurgeons are inherently fairly self-centered. So can you, can you leave uh, me with an idea of, of how I can try to forestall, I can't really prevent it, cognitive decline? Is there something I can do? I read about it all the time. I haven't done anything. But if you had to pick one thing to do, whether it be exercise or, or solving puzzles or, or whatever, social interaction, what is the one thing you think is the most likely intervention that a person can do to stave off dementia? The most, the, the number one recommendation I make to all uh, my older adult patients and my middle-aged patients, and at 50, um, you're relatively young, you're still in middle age. So there's a lot that you can do in middle age and even in older adult life to uh, decrease your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Exercise, I would go with the axiom, what's ever good for the heart is good for the brain. So re regular exercise, generally, you know, the American Heart Association has its guidelines, right? Of what regular exercise should be at least 150 minutes of aerobic exercise per week. You can augment that by strengthening and stretching and other things, but aerobic exercise, keeping your cardiovascular system as healthy as possible. And number two, I have to mention it because diet is very, very important. The effects of obesity, the, the effects of diabetes, the effects of vascular risk factors as it relates to excess body fat is very important. So, for example, if you you're on a Mediterranean diet, for example, that is low in saturated fats and you have good monosaturated fats and you have um, different kinds of foods that are heart healthy, they're also very brain healthy. So those would be the top two things that I do religiously as somebody who does research in this field. Well, Dr. Lowenstein, um, as I too often point out on this show, uh, I was a psychology major myself and enjoyed studying these things uh, immensely back in my college days. So I feel like I could stay here and talk your ear off all night about uh, these disorders and about the decline of cognition as humans age. But to respect both your time and that of our listeners, I think we should draw our discussion to a close here. I do want to thank you on behalf of both us on the show and everyone listening for taking the time to come on and explain not just how you approach and understand and quantify these human cognitive functions, but perhaps more importantly, how you continue to study ways to prevent their decline later in life, um, both for all of us and, of course, for patients suffering from these specific disorders. So, Dr. Lowenstein, thank you so much for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast tonight. Thank you so much, Dr. Wang, for having me.